Hello everyone, welcome to Phosphorus, the podcast all about phosphorus. My name is Hector Fajardo. And my name is George Hotelling, and we'll be your hosts for today's episode. We're a part of the Science and Technology for Phosphorus Sustainability Center, which is otherwise known as STEPS. The STEPS Center aims to improve phosphorus sustainability by applying research in many fields at many scales. The topic for today is somewhat of a thought experiment, which delves into the future. Phosphorus sustainability requires a long-term vision. At the core of steps, 25 in 25 is the action plan, a model, to drive the movement. This action plan acknowledges the need for phosphorus sustainability and strives to obtain it. The STEPS vision is to facilitate a 25% reduction in human dependence on mined phosphates and a 25% reduction in losses of point and non-point sources of phosphorus to soils and water resources within 25 years, leading to enhanced resilience of food systems and reduced environmental damage. And with such a powerful vision for the future, we wanted to look into the structure and motivation behind STEPS. Our guest today is Dr. Jacob Jones, the Director of STEPS and a Professor of Material Sciences at North Carolina State University. By the end of the interview, we'll have the how and why that together make STEPS a very convincing argument. There are even a few ways to get involved mentioned throughout the episode, so if you're interested, stick around. Now let's get into the interview. We would like to start this conversation by asking you, what is your conception of the 25 in 25? And why are we using this as our vision? Hector, that's a great question. And thanks for having me here today. I appreciate uh, being interviewed on this topic and also the fact that this is being led by students of, of STEPS. And so that's spectacular. Um, but I, actually, I want to change your question a little bit. So I, I first want to answer the question, what is a vision? Um, you know, a vision is distinct from a mission. It's distinct from a goal. Visions are very high, high level, lofty statements. They're long term. They may take decades to realize. They're ambitious to the point where they may actually never be achieved. But importantly, visions and vision statements inspire and motivate organizational actors and individuals um, and help in that way drive forward momentum of, of the organization itself. So, you know, in preparation for talking about the 25 and 25 vision here with you today, I looked up some other organizations' visions just to get an idea of what a statement should look like. And uh, Coca-Cola, um, the vision of Coca-Cola is to craft the brands and choice of drinks that people love. Craft the brands and choice of drinks that people love to refresh them in body and spirit, right? Wonderful, inspirational. Delta Airlines, to be the world's most trusted airline. In a way, it's lofty, but it can be achieved. LinkedIn, this is, this is my favorite. Create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. Every member, right? You think LinkedIn is going to achieve that, but it sure is motivational, right? Now, some people, um, some people want something more tangible, and that's a little bit too lofty for them. So... Look to the words of John F. Kennedy when he was talking about going to the moon. You know, he said, and I quote, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade, right? So that's inspirational, but also it's tangible. It's measurable. Go to the moon. Did we do it or did we not? Go to the moon in this decade. Did we do it or did we not, right? 
Um, so there's a quantitative aspect to that. So we wanted in steps to have a vision that inspires and motivates people, but we also want to play to the needs of individuals that want it to be a little bit more tangible. And that's what we came up with in 25 and 25. Um, another piece of background, Hector, I think, into understanding what we mean by 25 years and 25% losses to soils and surface waters and 25% um, reduction in human dependence on mine phosphates really comes out of uh, an object that I have to introduce here at the beginning. It's something we call in the center a convergence boundary object, and that is our phosphorus flow diagram. Our phosphorus flow diagram can be found on the website. And what it does is through the global food system, tracks the annual mass of phosphorus flows in different areas. So you can see the total amount of phosphorus coming into the food system. You can see it converted to fertilizers. You can see it used in agriculture. You can see it consumed by humans. Uh, you can see it flowing into surface waters and, and flowing into to wastewater treatment plants, for example. And so with a quantitative systems level understanding at global scale of how phosphorus flows, then you can come up with an idea of how to, how to make change, how to, how to deploy interventions that change the flows of the system. And inspired by that diagram, actually what I should say is um, that diagram was inspired by another diagram that was created by Dana Cordell and published in 2014. So we credit her with the inspiration, but we modified a few things on it. So it's a systems level description. It can, it can tell us where we can intervene and what effect that might have on phosphorus flows. And so with those two pieces of background information, what is a vision and what is a phosphorus flow diagram? Let me put the chronological story out for you. It was 2019 when we were uh, writing the first proposal to submit to the National Science Foundation. And I had written in what I thought was a, an acceptable vision or mission statement. And that was to discover and develop new scientific and technological solutions. To discover and develop new scientific and technological solutions to controlling, recovering, reusing, and regulating phosphorus. And then some more words after that. Now, is that a lofty, ambitious, inspiring statement? You know, looking back on it, I clearly say it's not. It's also wordy. Um, and so uh, one of the folks on the team, when they were reading through the proposal and making comments, I think it was four days before the submission of the proposal, said, this is generic. It's not good enough. And so um, we sent a lot of emails at the time because the team is located across a lot of different institutions and said, well, what should a vision of a center like this be? Um, and someone threw out the idea that we should have a 25-year vision because a 25-year vision goes beyond the life of the center, indicating that we have to sustain it, right? Um, and it's also uh, achievable within our lifetime, so we'll be able to see it. And so that's really where we came up with 25 years. And then uh, the other 25 components to the vision statement include a reduction in our dependence on mine phosphates by 25% and a reduction in losses of phosphorus to soils and surface waters by 25%. And so we took a close look at that flow diagram and said, is this, is this possible? Could we make 25 and 25 and 25 happen? And uh, you know, there are a lot of engineers on our team and engineers like to do uh, mass balances. And so uh, one of our folks, Dean Hesterberg decided to, to do that. So he said, he asked himself the question, could we actually achieve 25 and 25, knowing what we know about the flow of phosphorus through the global system, through the global food system today. And so I looked up what he wrote in that email back in uh, 2019. 
Um, he says it'd be good to state somewhere how this 25% reduction can be achieved. He says, I've calculated that it's achievable. And so uh, here he says, completely eliminating 6.1 metric tons of discharge from non-point sources, that's runoff. Hey, just a quick note. Accounting for all of the runoff actually requires six extra zeros. Dr. Jones let us know that he meant to say 6.1 million metric tons. Completely eliminating runoff and getting 100% of that back into soils for plants to uptake could reduce our dependence on rock phosphate by 36%. So um, it's, a, it's a lofty vision, right? The complete runoff, right? Recovered, we get you 36. And we only have to be 70% efficient at doing that in order to achieve 25%. So it is achievable. It's not going to be easy. But again, going back to the uh, JFK quote, we, we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because it's hard. Um, and so we map that charge to, to what we're doing in phosphorus sustainability. So we did some of those calculations. And finally, we said, you know, we don't think anyone can poke a hole in, in whether or not we could achieve 25 and 25. So let's, let's go with it. And uh, it was very inspirational in leading the team to ultimately win a science and technology center focused on the topic. There's another interesting tidbit um, of, of quantitative data in a paper published in the, the journal Nature in 2018 by Marco Springman and a bunch of other authors. And so this paper looks at environmental impacts of phosphorus in the environment. And uh, through modeling, uh, that team calculates different types of interventions and the effect those interventions might have on environmental pressures. And if you do things like change diets of every human on the earth, you can't bring back the environmental pressure that's gonna be pushing from population growth. If you do things like reducing food waste, also you can't bring it back. Um, if you create new technologies, the models show that you can bring it back to, to levels near what we had in 2010 but it's through the convergence of all of those things that you can get the greatest reduction in environmental impact. So um, we don't think we can solve this alone with technologies. That's why we have social scientists on the team, for example. Um, in fact, the disciplines across steps, and maybe this is in another question span, 28 uh, unique disciplines. So it's a great group and uh, glad to talk a little bit about that 25 and 25 vision. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for giving that background earlier. I really loved hearing about the kind of origins of STEPS and the initial thinking that went into STEPS and just getting that kind of behind the scenes feel. And 28 unique disciplines. That's just, that's a big number. That's cool. Moving on a little bit, I wanted to come back to this word convergence that you've mentioned, like when you were talking about the convergence boundary objects. Um, I was wondering if you could give us a look into and an idea of how STEPS uses convergence in their research. Yeah, great question, George. So maybe I should uh, define convergence research or at least provide a definition for it. Um, so also, if you didn't know already, uh, growing convergence research is an NSF big idea. Uh, and they released those big ideas a few years ago. Um, and we latched onto it because it is an approach that we uh, absolutely need in a center like this. So uh, according to the NSF definition of convergence research, it's an approach that seeks to tackle an important and compelling. And I think, I think they also say specific societal problems, something very specific using highly transdisciplinary approaches. And so phosphorus is precisely that. Phosphorus sustainability is precisely that. Uh, we argued to NSF and I still argue today that you can't get more specific 
than a single element on the periodic table represented by a single letter. And it's compelling from a scientific perspective and a societal perspective because of all the different challenges right, around enhancing sustainability of that. So uh, we're a convergence research center. In fact, one of the reviewers called us a convergence research center with phosphorus sustainability as the vehicle. And that's a really neat way of describing how we do and, and what we do, right? What we do is uh, phosphorus sustainability work. How we do it is through convergence research. The challenges underpinning phosphorus sustainability are very broad um, from many different disciplines to many different stakeholders. Um, and you can describe it along so many different dimensions. And one of the ways in which we describe the challenges underpinning phosphorus sustainability from our perspective as a center is through link scale. Um, so we need researchers working at very uh, small link scales like angstrom or nanometer scale. Uh, folks like myself who works in material science, chemists, chemical engineers, we need them working hand in hand with researchers at other link scales like social scientists and uh, agriculture researchers. And so uh, in order to integrate research across all of those different link scales, we need highly transdisciplinary approaches, right? Um, transdisciplinary approaches build upon interdisciplinary approaches, which builds on multidisciplinary approaches. But transdisciplinarity is really taking methods in one discipline and applying those methods in another discipline. And so we see that in many cases throughout steps. So to advance a, a vision as ambitious as 25 and 25, we need to understand at the highest level, at the systems level, understand phosphorus flows, where we can intervene, how we can create solutions that will be adopted and actually make an impact in the long term. So our researchers are situated in these highly disparate disciplines um, and we have an integration director uh, on our team. So she's the STEPS integration director and she's trained in the fields of science of team science and integration and implementation science. And she creates structures and processes in order to facilitate our integrating across all of those different uh, dimensions and all those different disciplines. I have a question now. Will you be able to explain a little bit more about these scales? And why does the center have these teams? Also, could you describe how these teams are connected? Yeah, that's a really great question, Hector. So um, it's important, we think it's important when you go into convergence research to um, work across disciplines, but also be able to talk to people that are closely associated with your discipline who speak your language and can really advance things forward, forward momentum, right? So there are a couple different ways of, of looking at how interactions happen within steps. So within what we call research themes, there are closely associated disciplines that speak common languages, right? They can have scientific discussions and use jargon. Um, but then across these research themes, we have to learn how to communicate our science to an audience that isn't used to all the acronyms that we throw out there, right, in our jargon. So in steps, we structured three disciplines and we structured them by link scale. So at the smallest link scale, um, uh, I think we call this the material scale. At the smallest link scale, we call this theme one, the material scale. Again, we've got material scientists, chemists, chemical engineers, some environmental engineers that look at things that are difficult to see with the human eye. Um, also, a lot of computational modelers doing molecular modeling, um, density functional theory, very theoretical-based modeling of how materials interact with uh, orthophosphates in solution, for example. 
Um, at a longer length scale, at objects you can see, uh, we define this as the human technology scale. And we said that because that's the scale at which humans interact with technologies. So be thinking about things like wastewater treatment plants, uh, farms, uh, watersheds, lakes, rivers, right? These are, uh, again, humans and technology hand in hand at that scale. Um, the third scale, theme three, is called the regional and global scale. And so in that uh, scale, we think about uh, continental challenges, like how is phosphorus, how, how are phosphorus flows um, moving across the U.S., for example? Um, what is the distribution of phosphorus in soils across the U.S., and how does that change with time? Um, how does uh, public po policy or macroeconomics affect phosphorus flows? So if there's a a war, for example, that breaks breaks out, uh, hypothetically speaking, and then you have some uh, trade that's disrupted, right? What effect could that have, in particular, on, on vulnerable countries? You know, phosphorus is not universally available throughout the world. Uh, there are mines in select locations, and so uh, as the the world politics evolve, it's important to think about who has access to that important resource. So again, themes one, two, and three tackling. Uh, unique challenges at the link scale, but also working collaboratively across the link scales. And so this, this brings in the other element to this, the orthogonal dimension. And this is where we define projects. So specific projects and steps are typically between, uh, if you include faculty and students in terms of size, a typical project is, you know, between four and, and 12 um, individuals. And those individuals have to come from multiple link scales. So you can't have a project that just has theme one researchers. We don't want material science, material scientists and chemical engineers just working together by themselves uh, because again, we're a convergence research center. So that's the structure. So we've got the link scale division uh, by themes where you can have uh, deep scientific conversations to drive things forward, uh, but the necessary integration cross theme to actually uh, tackle problems. Yeah, wow, that is quite the breakdown. And so now I'm kind of beginning to build this web map, if you will, of different fields of studies and themes and projects and institutes. And something that I'm beginning to wonder about is kind of where do stakeholders play into this? And for those of you who might not know, a stakeholder is essentially someone who has stakes in the game, like a farmer, for example. So, Dr. Jones, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the relationship that STEPS have with stakeholders and, and how STEPS kind of brings them into what we do? Yeah, that's a great question, George. So stakeholders are a very important part of what we do in STEPS. Um, we do it formally, informally across multiple projects, but let's talk about stakeholders in general for a second. And I think, uh, I think back to the outset of the pandemic, right? The world was changing. And on the day that I, the last day I spent on campus before I went home and hibernated, stopped at the grocery store and all the produce was gone. And I took a photograph. I don't know if you remember that day. It was a unique day. And I guess in that spirit, everyone on earth is a stakeholder to phosphorus sustainability because phosphorus is required to grow everything you eat. Right. And it became very apparent on that day that food insecurity is possible. Right. So we need food security. And in that respect, again, everyone is a stakeholder. Now, there are stakeholders that are more closely um, interwoven into the problem. There are stakeholders that make very critical decisions that are important to recognize. 
Um, one stakeholder would be a farmer, for example. So a farmer of a maybe a locally owned farm making their own decisions on fertilizer practices, uh, where they're uh, purchasing their fertilizer, how much they're willing to pay for it, um, how they apply it, and then their perceptions and understanding and, and social networks influence that behavior. Other stakeholders may be wastewater treatment facility managers who make decisions on uh, when to turn on certain processes to recover phosphorus, how to meet certain guidelines on phosphorus concentrations and effluent that leaves the wastewater treatment plant, for example. Um, other stakeholders could include agribusinesses and mining companies, right? So mining companies um, are very interested in what we're doing because we're talking about their product, phosphorus. And we hope that those that are um, engaged in the mining industry are interested in recycling as well and sustainability of their business in the long term, not just the short term. So they're an important stakeholder in the process. Agribusinesses have the opportunity to take recycled phosphorus and try to reuse it in product um, as an additional product line for them. So they're an important stakeholder. You know, George, we could probably keep going on and on like this forever, right? But, you know, what we do in steps, maybe I should just go there, is convene these stakeholders to provide input to the research projects. So we do this through both formal and informal ways. Um, dare I say this is informal, but just the mere fact that we have an extension program here in North Carolina means that a lot of our faculty are out there talking to people all the time. And two of our partners, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and University of Florida also have extension programs. So our faculty that participate in the center have been talking to these stakeholders for a long time. Um, in addition to that, that connectivity, uh, we also have a formal program uh, through a component of steps called Knowledge Transfer, KT. The Knowledge Transfer co-leads, who are Matt Scholes and Kara Grieger, um, formed a stakeholder community group. So a large group of individuals that they survey with questions in order to learn about the constraints and perspectives and their stakeholder narratives, right? Um, they've also formed, in the process of forming, what we call a technical working group, which is a smaller group of stakeholders that take on a specific challenge associated with phosphorus sustainability, bring steps researchers to the table, literally like to the same table. Hopefully we can do this in person. <laughs> it's the same table. <laughs> on the Zoom screen. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the outputs of that process is they're supposed to guide what future research proposals are submitted, right? We wanna co-create the next best idea for a project with researchers, STEPS researchers and stakeholders sitting at the same table. And the benefit of that is not only is it gonna be a really good project, when it's successful, it's gonna be adopted and implemented. Jacob. While you were answering this last question, you mentioned something related to extension and how to transfer knowledge. Something important for this is to study different systems, and I understand that the center has considered this through the TBLs. Could you please explain more about this concept and its significance? Yeah, that's, that's really great, Hector. Thank you. And this pulls us back to the earlier discussion on uh, convergence. And uh, the fact that we have an integration director who creates structures and processes to help us integrate. So we have what we call convergence boundary objects, which are things that everyone in the center should be able to associate themselves with. It's kind of like an interstitial object. Um, and we have several convergence boundary objects. One is the phosphorus flow diagram we spoke about before. So every student, every postdoctoral scholar in steps should be able to look at that flow diagram and say, okay, I'm working right there. 
or what I'm doing applies to these three arrows, right? That, that enables everyone to put their virtual or real hands on that phosphorus flow diagram and connect. Um, another way that uh, we created during the genesis of STEPS um, to facilitate um, the connectivity of everyone in the center um, were physical, uh, physical locations. Um, and we called them triple bottom line sites or TBL sites. So these are specific geographical locations. You could literally put on a map and draw a line and say, okay, what goes on in that site? Um, how can we intervene with phosphorus flows? Can we actually prototype and test deploy um, technologies to see that? Or should we calculate it hypothetically based upon modeling the system? You know, either way, that geographical footprint enables you to do that, right? It also enables you to look down and see the stakeholders and look at the stakeholder narratives that are within that specific region. And so triple bottom line comes from uh, the three factors for sustainability triple bottom line factors for sustainability, which are the social, economic, and environmental factors. And so it was our vision for those TBL sites that we have something with a geographical boundary where we can study all three of those factors with respect to implementing solutions and making changes. And we have a, a rural site here in Eastern North Carolina called Tidewater. That's one of our TBL sites. We have an aquatic, a large aquatic ecosystem in South Florida that really starts north of Lake Okeechobee and then the, the water flows down into Lake Okeechobee, through Okeechobee, down into the Everglades agricultural area, and then all the way down to Everglades National Park and out to the ocean. So that is a really interesting aquatic site, but it includes a lot of agricultural technologies in the, the Everglades agricultural area that have been specifically implemented in order to extract phosphorus before the waters reach the Everglades National Park. Has a very interesting history there with uh, public policy several decades ago, dictating that we must reduce the amount of phosphorus flowing out from Lake Okeechobee. So that's the aquatic ecosystem. And then urban ecosystems are also very important. There's a lot of waste generated in uh, highly dense urban areas and how that's dealt with is important. Runoff um, from storms is also important and how that affects phosphorus flows. Uh, and uh, our urban TBL site is Central Arizona Phoenix. And Central Arizona Phoenix is the acronym CAP. There is a NSF, there's an NSF project down there as part of the Long-Term Ecological Research Program or LTER. It's been sponsored for decades where they've been collecting data on phosphorus and other types of ecological parameters. And so we collaborated with that LTER site, they're called CAP-LTER, uh, but they have a, a history. There's a paper maybe a decade or so ago that captured the phosphorus flows within that system, again, as a flow diagram. And they drilled down to things even like, you know, pet litter, right? Pet litter contains a measurable amount of phosphorus and how it's dealt with could be important in, in certain areas. Great, thank you for sharing all that. I think it's really interesting how we have these TBL sites and the LTER sites around the country kind of giving us the scope of the data that we, we wouldn't be able to get in the laboratory setting. And so, so far we've heard about these TBL and LTER sites and our stakeholders and kind of how convergence ties everything together. And it's clearly building this, this picture of a lot of effort going in in all different sorts of places. and. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit now, Dr. Jones, and ask you 
to tell us a little bit about the the why the like why is there so much effort going into this? So I was wondering if you could tell us about sort of the current state of phosphorus sustainability and, and why phosphorus sustainability is so important. Yeah, great, great question, George. So um, as I said before, phosphorus is a critical nutrient in our food system. So it's one of the three major nutrients in fertilizers. Uh, fertilizers typically have formulations of NPK, which is nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, phosphorus is appreciated as the element that drives crop yields because it drives plant growth. So it's important to be uh, in there in that mix. Um, the way that we use phosphorus is currently unsustainable. We mine it from uh, non-renewable resources. We use it inefficiently in our food system. It's an interesting fact that only 20% of the phosphorus that enters the global food system enters our diet. Conversely, 80% of it's lost. When you go buy shampoo at the grocery store, do you want to throw 80% of it away? When you recycle aluminum cans, do you want to throw eight out of 10 away? You know, uh, there's the need to capture it, um, recover it and reuse it uh, for, for, um, for agricultural purposes. So we don't really have a lot of circularity in uh, phosphorus now. And so thinking about what is sustainable phosphorus uh, use look like, it involves increasing the circularity. So whether you're capturing phosphorus at the source, whether you're capturing it in toilets in an urban system, or whether you're capturing it at a wastewater treatment plant, or whether you're capturing it from surface waters, or you're transforming it in soils from a form that's locked, maybe an organic phosphorus or an, a phosphate that's bound to a metal like iron phosphate, None of those can be uptaken by plants. So they just sit there, they're locked in the soil and they're referred to often as legacy phosphates or legacy phosphorus. So we need technologies um, in order to transform those forms of phosphorus into something that uh, can be uptaken by plants. So you can think of that as actually like non-conventional mining, you know, mining phosphorus from soils that already exist in the area where you wanna grow plants. Uh, it's been said that uh, you can grow crops for many years, if not decades, in the state of North Carolina because there's so much phosphorus already there. The challenge is releasing it so that it can actually be uptaken by plants. And that's true in many other areas of the U.S. So, again, going back to my original statement, you know, it's required to grow everything that we eat. And connecting that then with the inefficiencies and the loss, you know, where is all that lost phosphorus and how can we get it back? Well, we lose it at all of these different stages in the process identified on the phosphorus flow diagram. So we need to be making innovations um, in our research and our technology development in all of those different areas. Definitely, definitely. And it sounds like we have a pretty good idea of what's going on and what direction we need to go in. And I know there's progress being made right now too, but I have to beg the question, what might happen if we don't make those innovations? Well, I don't want to paint a, a grim picture, George, but the, uh, the, if we don't make those innovations, the challenges that we're seeing today are going to grow and explode, um, particularly as you look at the world's projected population growth. Um, and that's going to drive up the need for food, uh, the need for increasing crop yields, which is going to drive up the desire for some to apply more fertilizer, uh, which again is mined from non-renewable sources. This is going to drive up... Uh, uh, agricultural runoff, so uh, non-point source runoff. It's going to increase levels of eutrophication. Uh, eutrophication causes harmful algal blooms and fish kills. 
um, the hypoxic dead zones that are um, around our coasts here in the U.S. where the rivers meet the oceans. They're going to increase in size. It's going to affect uh, maybe small family businesses that rely on fishing, for example. You're going to have to go further afield in order to, to conduct your business. So um, where you see that playing out uh, across the world is very important. So you know, we've seen a lot of growth in the past in certain areas of the world and the population growth for Africa uh, in the next couple of decades is the, the most accelerated. And so we also need to be thinking about how the technologies and how the understanding and the insight that we have here in the U.S., not just within STEPS, but within all phosphorus sustainability work, we need to be thinking about how that maps to other continents where they have unique soils, they have unique stakeholders, they have unique plants, they have unique crops, they have unique growing conditions. Um, and so it's a problem that uh, far, it goes far beyond what STEPS can achieve by itself, which is why that first word in that vision statement is facilitate. Facilitate within 25 years, a 25% reduction in our human dependence on mine phosphates and a 25% reduction in losses of phosphorus to soils and surface waters leading to enhanced resilience to the food system and food security. Facilitate, right? Um, we need more people working on phosphorus sustainability research. We need to increase the visibility of the problem. Um, and we need to work more together with other research centers and other researchers in a collaborative way. So uh, it's, I think, George, I started that by, by saying I didn't want to paint a grim picture, but then I ended up painting that grim picture for you. So we need yeah. to do better. We, we do need to do better. And uh, I kind of led you into that, didn't I? And I, I think that it's important to, to hear that. It's important to be a little bit realistic about situations sometimes. But like everybody has heard today, there's a lot of effort going into it. Everything that we've heard in the past 30 minutes is pretty, pretty impactful, will be. And um, I think personally uh, inspiring. Um, Jacob, how, how do you feel about the the progress of steps and are there other people doing similar things? Uh, how do I feel about the progress of steps? Uh, I feel positive, but we've just started. You know, we're a year and a half in as a research center. Uh, we, to our knowledge, are the only research center in the world that's dedicated to studying phosphorus sustainability. There are a lot of research centers that study fertilizers in general or soil science or plant science, but we focus specifically on phosphorus. But uh, we're doing some really great things, not just on the research front, uh, but we're also, because again, the first word of that vision statement is facilitate. We've also engaged uh, RTI International, which is a nonprofit research institute located here in the Research Triangle. We've engaged them in leading what we call a road mapping process. Uh, so this road mapping process is producing a tangible outcome, which is a list of impact opportunities where through engaging stakeholders, we've identified you know, key areas where we need to make advances. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to release that uh, first version of that roadmap uh, in a few months. Uh, but that roadmap will be dynamic because um, we know that we will create innovations or we will gain new insight that affects that roadmap. And we'll learn from others that are working in phosphorus sustainability, and it's going to influence the roadmap. Moreover, when you create something like that, it's nearly impossible to engage every relevant stakeholder. So it's just a start. And we're hoping that once it's published, when we go through iteration two, 
anyone that sees it that thinks that they can contribute can join in the effort, join in our working group of, of creating those impact opportunities and that roadmap. But that roadmap is meant to guide research, not just within steps, but guide research nationally. It's a US centric roadmap for phosphorus sustainability. And it complements the other acronym that you mentioned, OPF, which is Our Phosphorus Future, uh, which is a document that uh, is very similar in, in some ways. It's very comprehensive. It took a lot longer to create that document, um, but it does have a, a bias really toward uh, the UK and, and toward Europe, uh, whereas what we're trying to do is take into account the local context of the US. So we're excited about the first year and a half and what we've achieved, but um, I think we're more excited about what's to come. So research projects that started in year three have been proposed. Uh, we're iterating. Uh, the research within steps is dynamic. It's never static. Um, any research project that started in year one may not be here in year five. Um, we need to take one research project and the outcomes of that and blend it with another to conquer another challenge. And so it's, it's a fun time at steps right now because we're going through that, that iteration of thinking, okay, how can we merge projects? How can we do things differently? And then we set up new projects and able to do that. So now that you mentioned all of these other efforts that are currently being done in different places, I would like to ask you how the creation of this new Convergence Research Center will help to increase phosphorus sustainability and achieve the 25 in 25 vision. Yeah, Hector, great question. Um, like I said before, to our knowledge, we're the first major research center that's dedicated to studying phosphorus sustainability. And so getting as many investigators as we have on our team uh, behind one single idea is going to help us gain traction. Um, and I mentioned earlier that we take a convergence research approach because we know that the, the challenges are hard and we need to understand it at a systems level and apply highly transdisciplinary work in order to make advances. And I said that we have uh, engagement with stakeholders in, in order to guide us into doing the right things that will result in knowledge or products that is ultimately adopted by those folks. But I think above and beyond those three things, which I think should be a sufficient answer for a question like that, I would add that STEPS is an academic research center that supports graduate students and postdoctoral researchers to help accomplish the work. And so there's an important training aspect to the center that we haven't addressed yet. And so George and Hector, you know, you two um, are two of those, uh, two of those scholars. Uh, so we call collectively undergraduate students, graduate students and uh, postdoctoral scholars are STEPS scholars. Um, and your experiences in the center uh, should prepare you for tackling other wicked challenges when you graduate. You don't need to continue working on phosphorus sustainability. You sure can. <laughs> but you don't have to, right? You could work on uh, water sustainability, food security, microplastics in the environment. You know, there's all sorts of interesting things out there that require similar approaches and the ability to cross uh, talk across disciplines. So uh, I think those four things really describe the, uh, the importance of STEPS and the importance of, of what we're doing within STEPS to achieving phosphorus sustainability. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And as a STEPS scholar myself, I can definitely say that I can think of examples of, of all of those reasons that you, you gave in your last answer. So maybe we'll ask a few more questions and then start to wrap it up. But for my next question, I'm thinking about how we've broadly talked about the direction of steps and how things will be implemented. But I'm wondering if there's anything that an individual can do in their daily life. Absolutely. So um, 
George, there is a lot that an individual can do to help in this effort. Uh, and this was thought a lot about by one of our partners uh, called the Sustainable Phosphorus Alliance or SPA. Uh, they're also known simply as the Alliance. This is an industry uh, membership-based organization that advances phosphorus sustainability. Uh, they complement what we do and they're a partner with us, uh, but they don't fund research directly. So that's what differentiates them. Um, and what they've created and is available on their website is a, a sheet that gives 12 steps to a more sustainable you. So I'd encourage anyone that's interested in uh, thinking about, you know, what they do on a daily basis, what food you purchase, uh, how you go about your daily lives, what decisions you make, and how that influences your phosphorus footprint and the sustainability in general. I'd encourage you to go there to take a look at it. And, you know, I'll just toss out one thing. Um, which is uh, related to, to diets. So when I started learning more about phosphorus sustainability, you know, I was reluctant to go from my previous diet, which was, I don't know how to characterize it, non-special. Um, I was uh, hesitant um, to go to, to something like vegan or vegetarian uh, wholly. So I adopted what's called a flexitarian diet. And so in a flexitarian diet, um, you eat food that's uh, mostly uh, grown by plants um, and you occasionally eat meat. So I find that, you know, my phosphorus footprint, both on the amount of phosphorus required to grow the food that I eat, as well as the phosphorus that then I contribute to waste, um, I found that I can make a, a personal impact and still enjoy the types of foods that I enjoy. So if you're ever in my office during lunchtime, you'll see me make my uh, black bean burger with a whole stack of vegetables. And there's a really thick slice of tomato that I always put in there. So I'm always looking at the grocery store for those freshest tomatoes. Jacob, would you like to give us your final message or thoughts to start closing this conversation? And lastly, I would like to ask if you have a fun fact about phosphorus to share with us. I think one thing that hasn't been addressed so far in the, the Q&A here on this podcast is um, the level of, of uh, awareness in the public for phosphorus mm -hmm. and phosphorus sustainability. And when you eventually read our roadmap, uh, you'll see one of the impact opportunities addresses this, which is something to do with elevating um, the understanding of, of peace sustainability in the, the public sphere. And what I would say to anyone listening to this podcast is you can help amplify the need to do that. Um, we, need, we need the mayors of cities to understand that this is an issue. Uh, we need uh, our representatives in DC to understand that this is an issue. Uh, we need uh, folks sitting down at the dinner table to understand that this is an issue. So how do you do that, right? Um, it would be great if we could find uh, a spokesperson uh, that the world already knows. Uh, to, to advocate for peace sustainability. So if you care about this and you're connected with one of them, convince them that it's an issue and put them in touch with us because we really need uh, vocal advocates out there uh, pushing that message out. Uh, we're also uh, creating for April, the 15th week of the year, an appreciation for the 15th element on the periodic table. Uh, we're going to declare Phosphorus Week uh, where we're going to push out uh, to the public as much as we can, uh, the need for phosphorus sustainability. So you can help us with that. Hopefully that will become an annual activity. But uh, do think about this at the individual level, but think about it at the collective level as well. Uh, we need to, to advance, you know, we need to advance collective motion on this topic. 
right? It's not just about an individual's decision, but it's also about making sure that we as a society uh, can move forward in a, in a better way. And we need fun things like songs yeah. and music. <laughs> so when we were creating Steps and when Steps was launched, I actually wrote some phosphorus lyrics to well-known uh, music. And then I turned it into a video to play for the team and they got a real kick out of it. So anyone that's musically inclined out there, you know, one way that you can help us elevate P in the public consciousness is think about writing a song because songs capture people's attention. So thanks, uh, George and Hector, for having me. Uh, I'm really excited that this podcast is being led by uh, Step Scholars. Uh, and I'm looking forward to listening to all of the other episodes as soon as this is released. Yeah. And, and thank you, Jacob, for your time and your effort with Steps. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jacob, for the time and for Thanks. all the ideas that you brought to the table. All right. Thank you, both. So there's our rundown on the Step Center. We want to give a big shout out to Director Dr. Jacob Jones for giving us the scoop, and we also want to thank the National Science Foundation for funding our center. And the music that you heard is from pixabay.com. We hope you enjoyed this dive into the backstory and mechanism of steps, and if you're interested in the phosphorus flow diagram or the 12 steps you can take to be a more sustainable you, those links will be in the description. Keep an eye out for future episodes, and with that, have a good one and we'll catch you next time.